Welcome, friends, to Inner Fire number three. This is Brian Stanford, your host. Today is the day after the winter solstice, and I have a very exciting episode for you today with Angel Millar, the author of the new and wonderful book, The Path of the Warrior Mystic, Being a Man in an Age of Chaos. I cannot recommend this book highly enough for people in these chaotic times, particularly for men. And I think this interview comes at a wonderful time, right in the season of Yule, the winter solstice, when things look and appear to be their darkest. But we know that the inner fire burns strong within and that the eternal hero will be resurrected. So get you something warm to drink, kick back, open up your computer, order you a copy of The Path of the Warrior Mystic, and check out this great interview. I hope you enjoy it. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to Inner Fire number three. We have a very special episode today with Mr. Angel Millar, author most recently of The Path of the Warrior Mystic, Being a Man in an Age of Chaos, which I finished reading yesterday and cannot recommend this book highly enough to people, uh, particularly men, particularly right now. And uh, I've known Angel virtually for a couple of years and was very honored that he was willing to come on the podcast. So, Angel, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you. It's good to speak with you. Yeah, it's good to speak with you too. Um, I, as we, as you know, we've messaged back and forth. I, I found this book, um, particularly right now with what's going on in the world today, uh, just kind of um, earth shattering. Really, you, you, you have a way of putting things. Uh, very succinctly and um, uh, in a way that's almost um, weaponized in a good way. I feel like this book is uh, like a weapon for men in the modern era um, to pick up. So I was really excited to have you on. Um, I have some pages marked uh, throughout the chapters that I want to touch on as we have this discussion, but I just kind of wanted to start off by asking you um, what inspired you to write this book? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Well, my first three books were histories, uh, looking at different spiritual and religious movements, and then my fourth book looked at the archetypes of the craftsman, uh, warrior, and magician, a magician, loosely speaking, priest, the uh, mystic and so on. Um, this book, I was really interested in pursuing the path of, of, of self-development and of spirituality um, and really of, um, in a sense, uh, becoming one's true self and retaining independence in our day and age, which seems to be increasingly chaotic and yet increasingly authoritarian and increasingly unreal in some sense as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with you on all of those points. Um, 
on the the angle of totalitarianism and the unreality of the world that we're finding ourselves living in. And I know myself, and I think a, a lot of people, it just seems to be kind of in the in the um, spiritual atmosphere, this uh, a need to uh, you know kind of think about, discuss, and develop a sense of spiritual sovereignty and um, some sort of unshakable place from which we can we can um, be active in the world. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. All right. Well, I wanted to start off by just reading a short little passage here that's at the beginning of the introduction and then and then get your thoughts and have some discussion on that. So I'm just going to read. I'm quoting now directly from the book, um, page three and four, the last piece in the introduction where it says, we have mentioned the legend of Sir Gwain and the Green Knight. In another Arthurian legend, after the death of his father, Percival is taken to a forest by his mother and raised there. Although he is of noble blood, she fears that he might become a knight and keeps him ignorant of his nobility and of knighthood. But then, at fifteen years of age, Percival catches sight of some knights passing by, and sensing his destiny, immediately leaves his home and travels to King Arthur's court. There is much in this little tale. Percival's mother tries to shield her son from the world, to keep him from putting himself in danger. Yet once he catches a glimpse of who he could be, Percival leads the shelter of his mother and seeks out his destiny, even though it is dangerous. Today, as if infused with the spirit of Percival's mother, Western society is increasingly preoccupied with trying to create a world that is safe safe from confrontation, safe from ideas and opinions considered wrong, hurtful, or dangerous, safe from physical threat, accident, or viruses, and safe from risk itself. Doubtless, for many, a world in which the experts or the politicians tell us what we can and cannot do, say, or think in return for personal safety is a welcome trade. Yet for this, we will have to sacrifice not only our freedom, but also our spontaneity, self-reliance, risk-taking, adventure, our will to push beyond our limits or what we thought our limits were, and ultimately our own nature. For the safety of a world that looks after us, we will have to sacrifice who we are and what we could become, and we will discover too that a life lived safely will leave us vulnerable to new and unimagined dangers. And when I read this passage, I immediately marked under it that modernity is possessed by the dark mother. And this is something that I've been thinking about for years that I, I feel like our culture or, you know, some of the loudest voices in our culture are uh, constantly shrieking about the problems of masculinity, the problems of patriarchy, um, but I, I can starkly remember a few years ago asking a, a friend who has feminist leanings and she talks a lot about the patriarchy and the shadow side of masculinity. And I asked her what the shadow side of the mother archetype would be. And she was flabbergasted. She had no answer. It was like she didn't even think the mother could have a shadow side. Um, and it seems like we are, we are really caught up in that. So, uh I would love to hear your thoughts on that. 
Yeah, well, I think that you know that's right. We are very much under the um, under the, the power of the dark, uh, dark mother in a way, and in different ways. And, and the most obvious way that we see it is um, this uh, desire in society, especially among um, those who are in power, such as uh, politicians and media, uh, the desire to control everyone and keep everyone safe, but all this will do is create more chaos. And I think if we think about um, the response to a particular virus over the last two years and the response that is likely going forward, uh, it, I mean, it has already, I would say, at one point pushed the U.S. almost to breaking point. Mm. And if this continues for another year, two years, three years, five or ten years, uh, then we'll, we will be in a state of uh, absolute chaos. And um, the more safety we get and the more protection we get, the more chaotic it becomes. And, um, you know, if you look at, um, at boys who grow up with no, no father influence, who are sort of coddled by the mother in particular, protected by the mother, very often these people will become um, uh, dangerous, resentful, uh, even criminal sometimes because they grow up thinking, uh, even in adulthood, one can already say manhood, they think that they are entitled to everything and they think that the slightest little um, problem is you know, uh, somehow unfair. And, um, and what this... this uh, this kind of overprotectiveness creates, in a sense, it creates too much order, right? Because you know everybody has to be um, uh, structured according to certain you know groups or something. So you know, like the child's playground, the, the teachers will intervene and say, "You mustn't leave this child out," and you know, you mustn't have the popular kids here and the unpopular ones here, and you must all get along. And so everybody must adhere to rules all the time so everything is fair but um, in this world where there is this sort of overabundance of motherly orderliness uh, it ultimately uh, leads to chaos uh, because there is an inability to cope with uh, really any kind of any kind of pressure or any kind of disappointment or any kind of personal catastrophe um, mm. People don't don't get used to uh, you know having to go through risk and go through disappointment and go through trauma and being told that well you know you just have to push through it and do your best. Um, instead, you know people are told that you know it's unfair and they and they grow up feeling that it is that life should be perfect for them and if it's not then. It's, must be it's something that's been imposed on them, and uh, they become resentful, anarchic, you know, uh, violent, but often or intellectually violent, and they create more chaos than they would have done if they had been encouraged to sort of take manageable risks and push themselves in a healthy direction. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely agree with you there. It's been really. Um, What's the word? It's been kind of shocking to me to see over the last two years the effect that the virus has had on um, 
the effect that it's had on people and, and particularly people in the, you know, whatever you would want to call it, the spiritual community or, or, um, I mean, we've, I'm sure you've experienced, I mean, maybe you've experienced this. I've, you know, had friends or have friends who, you know, have our alternative medicine practitioners and who have eschewed Western medicine for years and, you know, have a deeply centered spiritual practice, um, but seem to have been just, uh, you know, completely shaken from their center um, by fear. Uh, yeah from the virus. And it's, it's really, is really interesting and quite surprising to me. I did not expect, um, I didn't expect the West to, to respond the way that the response is going. No, that's right. No. And, you know, again, you know, and the sudden well-known anarchist is called for, you know, all kinds of, uh, government, uh, restrictions on people. And it seems like a funny thing for an anarchist to but, yeah, everybody has basically thrown away all of the, the ideals that they have been shouting about and championing for the past however many decades, and uh, it's completely uh, buckled. But, uh, you know, um, you may not know, uh, I, I mentioned in my book, but the, the uh, sociologist uh, Ibn Khaldun, and, um, you know, recently there was that meme posted by uh, Joe Rogan, Hard men or strong men make uh, good hard times. Make strong men strong men make good times. Good times make weak men right hard times. Well, you know, um, if you go back about to uh, the I forget which century he was put in. I think fifteenth century. Uh, Ibn Khaldun sometimes is considered to be the first sociologist. He was born in Tunis, and uh, he throughout his life. Saw the rise and fall of dynasties in North Africa, in particular, and um, and he he claimed uh, that dynasties could only last three generations. And I think his schema is well worth contemplating in this day and age. And he said that in the first generation, the a band of warriors would swoop down on a decaying dynasty and take it over, but the warriors wouldn't sort of embrace the luxury instead of sleeping in beds, they would sleep on the floor still and they would still live according to the harsh desert values quote unquote. And then in the second generation the people would enjoy luxury but they would still admire the warrior spirit and they would secretly wish for the return of um, of the desert values. Uh, and that's the term we use. And then in the third generation the people would love luxury and their primal primary concern would be uh, safety. Uh, they would crave safety. And at that point, uh, even Kaldun says, uh, a new band of warriors will swoop down on the dynasty and take it over because it will be so weak. Mm. But, uh, and then effectively it will initiate the same cycle again. And, um, you know, I think that when a society is um, preoccupied with safety, I think it's a, you know a real indication that an end is near, and I don't, I'm not suggesting that uh, an outside force will swoop down and take over the U.S. I think that's quite unlikely. Although it would certainly um, uh, be interesting to see what would happen if there was a full-scale war with, let's say, China or Russia. Uh, we may have the military might, but whether we have the, uh, the spirit for a war, I think, is very debatable. 
But um, leaving that aside, uh, you know, this, this constant desire for safety uh, is really indicative of an ending. And um, it's very likely that we will, we will enter into a world that is much more chaotic. I mean, apart from things such as a decline in living standards, which I think is inevitable, but much more chaotic. Um, it, but at the same time, uh, we can't really just uh, accept that. I think, uh, you know, individually, we still have to embody our true nature and become uh, what we can become in this time, uh, as unfortunate a time as it may be to be living in many respects, and it may get worse. But we still have to do our best to embody our true nature and to excel and really, in a sense, to exemplify that possibility of a way out of chaos. And, uh, of course, you know, it may be, uh, you know, people may criticize this idea of focusing on the individual, um, you know, since uh, it may be construed that the emphasis on individuality in the West is precisely what has fragmented our society along the lines that it has. And it may even be a cause for uh, behind this, this uh, desire for safety because when you think about it uh, people have far fewer friends that they can rely on now many people don't have any friends or family they can rely on which is very very different to 30 40 50 years ago uh, people aren't connected in the same way that they were most of their relationships are completely superficial and um, you know maybe it's understandable that people feel that they need the government to look after them as unfortunate as that impulse is but on the other hand, you know, as society fragments along all kinds of different lines and looks you know, completely fractured, um, there's no possibility of uh, bringing society together and elevating it on one go. So the only real alternative is for individuals to become exemplars of a new, new possible way of life, I think. Um, that's kind of what I'm advocating. Yeah, I I just recently um, finished reading uh, Ernst Younger's The Forest Passage, right, yeah. and uh, which I quote, I believe it was. Yeah, that's where I got the idea to read it. Um, but it's it was it was you know at once it gave me um, some strength and in, and in another sense made me uh, feel kind of sad because I I'm definitely experiencing. I mean, even in my in my family, um, you know, people's attitudes to getting the shot or not getting the shot and, you know, thoughts about the virus, et cetera, et cetera, has led to, um, you know, the real straining of relationships. And I'm, I'm seeing it in my community, in my town, you know, friendships are, um, kind of falling apart between people based on, um, you know, largely it seems to be coming from one side, the side that feels like everybody should, you know, quote unquote, do their duty and get the second and the third shot and wear the mask and et cetera, et cetera. And then the people on the other end that just seem to kind of want to be uh, at best left alone. Um, but it's causing this real, you know, this real strain where uh, I, I feel like, you know, it's kind of doing two things. It's, it's forcing, um, a stronger sense of kind of rugged individuality. And, uh, it also seems to be creating 
you know, alternative forms of, uh, alternative forms of community. One of the interesting things, there's a lot of, there's a big burning man community where I live and it's pretty much split down the middle. Um, and you know, the, the side that is very afraid of the, the virus has started hosting parties where they're checking people's vaccine status. And, um, and, but that has caused the creation of this other group of kind of freedom dancers who are creating parties that are open to everyone. So it's, it's kind of interesting how it's, uh, you know, how it is doing that. Um, but you mentioned this need to focus, uh, you know, kind of on the, on the individual and how that can be seen as a, as a selfish, maybe of, of a turning inward, but I'm reminded of, um, uh, I, I went on a, a Buddhist retreat one time at a Thai uh, monastery. It was in the United States, but it was a monastery, and I was really amazed at the the fact that they, you know, it's a it was an ethnic Buddhist center, so they still had a lay population, like people who came who did not meditate, who did not, you know, they just kind of came to the temple like a like a like a Western person goes to church, and they yeah. would support financially support the monks. And I was talking to someone about this and they explained to me that the, the people in the Thai culture, um, it it was kind of their idea that these people who were going off and isolating themselves and working towards their own enlightenment were actually, you know, kind of saving the world by this thing that seemed like a turning inward. So it's an interesting. No, no. And, um, no, that's, that's the other thing. Uh, of course, the, all of the, the really the political hysteria we see does absolutely nothing for either side. People don't uh, join the political movement because they see people screaming and being angry. Um, you know what people are influenced by are exemplars of a, a better way of life. And, and, and of course, even in the West, you know, in a way, is America more religious than Great Britain, which has its own official church? Of course, I mean much more. Uh, and why is it more spiritual? Uh, well, it's more spiritual because people see the religious people and they grow up in religious families. And even if they reject religion, they still recognize that there's something important about spirituality, which previously was always tied to religion. Mm. People may be more religious because uh, you know, they have that pioneering spirit and don't want to rely on uh, governments or, or didn't want to traditionally out in the wilderness and so and this sense of uh, destiny and faith and mortality as well so and i know you you talk about this in the book and i was hoping you could say some words about it here but how how you know it occurs to me one of the things um as you know western society becomes less and less religious and kind of amorphously spiritual um, and very, very materialistic that when yeah. something like this virus thing happens, uh, people have no, you know, stable ground, uh, to, to stand on. Um, there's a, a man here in town who's a, a, the priest at the Greek Orthodox church. And you could really tell that this is a spiritually grounded man. He's not moved by fear. You know, um, it's not to say he doesn't take the situation seriously, but he's not moved by fear. And I think what we're seeing right. now is people who, uh, 
you know, have no spiritual root. Uh, even if they call themselves spiritual, their ultimate ideologies seem to be materialistic. And yeah, um, how much of that do you think feeds into the way people are responding to the current era? Yeah, well, I make the point in the book that you know, prior to the modern age and even into the modern age, you know, most people saw the world through the lens of faith, right? Mm. But today, uh, maybe maybe it's only over the last couple of decades or more or less, I'm not sure. But today, I would say the majority of people see the world through the lens of fear. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the reasons uh, why people didn't see the world through the lens of fear in earlier times, you know, go back to the, the biblical idea, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I'm not a Christian, by the way. Uh, or Jewish, I hate not mentioning the Bible, but um, you know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we find that incredibly difficult to understand today. And I think many Christians would be embarrassed about that as well, mm. to be honest. And they would say, oh, no, God is, God is love, and there's no need to fear God, and we shouldn't fear Jesus, and this kind of thing. But, um, well, no, I mean, it depends, it depends where you are and what your life circumstances are. Yes, if you are reclining on your couch every night munching on cheetahs then fear of the lord is incredibly impressive if you're on a battlefield and it's 10 to 1 well then fear of the lord is very liberating because uh, that means you don't have to fear the enemy in front of you and for the vast majority of human history and prehistory uh, we've been against the elements and uh, died young maybe 40 or whatever Right. And uh, could be guaranteed to die of disease or being attacked by a wild animal or maybe starvation as food dries up in one area and we had to move on or being killed by an invading army or bandits or whatever have you, really into the modern era even. And uh, so, you know, the idea that you would fear the Lord because then you took that away from the world and, uh, and that gave you strength in the world. There's a wild animal, you don't have to fear it because it kills you. It's all in the hand of the Lord, or there are bandits, and you don't have to fear the bandits because God is on your side. So it gives you strength, and that's the point. And today, without that, uh, you know, we believe what well, the government must save us. So, you know, even with thing, things like a natural disaster or virus, whatever it may be, you know, we, we, don't, um, we don't think, oh, this is the work of God. We we get angry because we think, why didn't the government act soon enough? That's our response to everything. So we're not even really afraid of viruses or of tornadoes, whatever it may be. We're afraid that the government won't act quickly enough. Hmm. They, they have become our God, the, the thing that will look after us. Yeah, as you were speaking, it. Um, I was, as you know, uh, I was in prison for a number of years and there was a very distinct time when I was there and things were particularly chaotic and bad. Uh, and, but I had this, I wouldn't have called it that at the time, the, the fear of the Lord, but what you're talking about, this sense that um, no matter what happens, I could not be touched. Um, even if they took me out behind the wall and shot me, they could not touch me. And I, and that was a, a, 
a lived experience for me at that time. And, and over time, I've lost it. I definitely don't have it now in right. the way that I had it then. But yeah. having had it then and had a taste of it, I know what it is. And I know that I want to lean in that direction because that fearlessness yeah. that comes from you know, the spiritual awakening to who and what we really are yeah. um, is a, is a, I mean, for, for systems that want to control people, it's a very dangerous thing to have people waking up to that fearlessness. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And in regard to uh, modern spirituality, as you were mentioning, yeah, one of the, one of the uh, uh, big disasters of it really, although, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, much more popular in in America than elsewhere, and that's a good thing. Uh, unfortunately, very often it just becomes a receptacle for political ideas, and you find that uh, these gods or Buddhas or whatever are invoked, and and, uh, and they always sound like uh, politicians and whatever the politicians <laughs> are saying today. And you know, I mean, you only have to. I, I mean, I recently I was in LA, and I, I came across two churches. And outside both of them were uh, these enormous banners listing out their political opinions, yeah. uh, all of which were completely predictable, of course. And um, it's quite remarkable that you can have a 2,000-year-old tradition and yet they have no, more, no, no other opinion than what you and I could hear on the news any day of the week. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating thing to behold. There's definitely... Um, uh, there was a, a time uh, when I was going to a lot of the different Christian churches here and I was, you yeah. know, I, kind of the trajectory of my spiritual path over the last 10 years was a, a recognition that I needed to re-engage with the religion of my my ancestors and, and my DNA. And that led me to Christianity and trying to come to some sort of understanding and peace with Christianity. And I, and I think I did come to that understanding and peace and then very quickly realized that there are strata below that, <laughs> you know, like right. a, a yeah. deeper level of ancestral faith. Yeah. While I was doing this with Christianity, I was, I was really trying to find a church that I could go to a church that practiced sacramental Christianity and that I could experience yeah. the sacraments. Mm -hmm. And it's exactly what you're saying. Virtually every, you know, definitely in the Episcopal churches, which oh, is yeah, the, the sure. Church of England in America, yeah. um, uh, it was, you know, that would be the main thing that you're met with at the door is their equity and inclusion statement or their statement yeah. about, you know, whatever um, the most recent thing is. And then even in some of the ones that are supposed to be, you know, more conservative, like the yeah. Anglican Church in North America, um, they they still, I mean, they still ascribe to all of the woke ideologies the Catholic Church does too. It's just you yeah. can't escape it. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, the thing about this is maybe maybe it's okay for an affluent society um, to be concerned with these things, but the the, the problem we may face is, um, you know, let's. Let's think if this virus continues for a few more years, which it probably will. Well, we might be plunged into economic turmoil. We could easily be in uh, a state of absolute chaos. I mean, just looking at um, New York a year ago, it's really easy to envision that we could be in a kind of Detroit situation in 10 years of, you know, with uh, gangs ruling parts of the city. Well, it's not going to be any good in that kind of society, is it? Right. It's not going to give you any kind of 
inner strength to face that kind of reality. It's just not because it's so hollowed out. And uh, all of the things that we've got used to and think that are terribly important um, may end up uh, just going, well, they will go completely by the wayside regardless of what happens, but they certainly will in that sort of circumstances. Yeah, that's it's a really good point. I, um, uh, I, I've always thought after I read Victor Frankl and right. a lot of Solzhenitsyn while I was in prison yeah. and remember thinking that you need a spirituality that can serve you when you land in the concentration camp. Yeah, um, that's right. Or thinking of Epictetus's thing of, you know, his school was the school where you learned how to be a slave and not in the sense that you over, you know, became complacent as a slave, but you learned right. how to maintain yourself no matter what the circumstances were. And it's yeah. kind of only this, you know, rare little period in history that we're, that like you said, I think all signs indicate we are rapidly exiting of, um, of this easy affluence uh, yeah. that you can get all of these, you know, um, nitpicky concerns that are that are so prevalent yeah and obviously you know whatever political view someone wants to have that's up to them but the, the problem will be that once all of these you know, religions are hollowed out and spiritual traditions are hollowed out and we can't even really think about um who who we can become or who we are or our inner strength or anything like that then we will not be able to face the future as it's going to appear towards us. And then we will discover that we have been robbed of something very fundamental. Mm. And of course, you know, one, one should not think that the churches are being, uh, have been exemplary. Uh, they, they have introduced all kinds of problems and are probably ultimately to blame because much of the uh, bad politics we see today is really a reaction against um, conservatism it's most uh, unthinking of forms it's against the, the churches uh, whether their abuse or uh, churches that became completely political maybe in a conservative sense and, mm -hmm. and really has hollowed out spirituality from from their institutions anyway I mean if you went back 40 50 years or more you know you weren't necessarily gonna you're spiritual in a church or in many churches, you're just going to, you know, maybe, maybe it would be patriotism or something like that, or that would be just as, uh, just as uh, unlikely to sustain us in a time of collapse and small hearts. Right. Slightly, only slightly more likely that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, you, <laughs> I, you quote somebody, you move on in your, the, uh, I'm, I'm kind of going to jump around cause I want to come back to the yeah. noble friendship chapter because i thought that was really important but in the yeah. chapter on necessary work you have a couple of really great quotes from swami vivekananda who okay. who never ceases to surprise me i i only recently found out that he had been a freemason which was really right. surprising to me yeah. um but there's this quote here where he you you quote him saying we want muscles and nerves of steel yeah. not mamby pamby ideas um and, you know, that's just like a, a <laughs> it's like a great uh, bucket of ice water thrown in your face. Um, yeah. And you, in this chapter, you talk a lot about 
what I think of as, as physical culture. And that was one of the first things that brought me to your work was seeing um, quotes that people were posting uh, from you on the necessity of strength training, physical training and martial arts yeah. towards yeah. the spiritual path. Right. Um, and I feel like I'm seeing this uh, kind of start to bubble up in, in certain, um, um, certain spiritual spheres of, yes. of an emphasis on um, men, particularly developing, developing strength, developing toughness, yeah. uh, developing the skills of war, um, and, uh, uh, and this, this mind body dualism and, you know, kind of bringing the body back to spirituality. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think in the future, we may look back at this time as a time in which certain individuals and groups began to realize the importance of the body to spirituality and to spirituality in the 21st century and beyond that. And, you know, maybe uh, maybe 2,000 years ago or 2,500 years ago or, or less, uh, maybe, maybe it was a good thing to get away from the body. We weren't around it, so we can't really make that judgment at all. But I think in, a, in an age in which uh, life is increasingly unreal, in which our most real, um, our most real sort of image is online, uh, you know, with our avatars and our images that are doctored and stuff like this, and in which people are already, or some people are already talking about how they would like to upload their consciousness, <laughs> live as, uh, live as some sort of data. We need to push back against this and recognize that what makes us human and what makes us uh, spiritual and what gives us meaning is uh, rooted to a very great degree in the body. And certainly, of course, there are times when we can escape the body. For example, in meditation, you might reach some heightened state of consciousness where it seems like the body is not even existing. And you kind of exist almost as a kind of state of consciousness, but nevertheless, you have to come back to the body. Mm. Uh, and of course, yes, we will leave the physical body behind at death. But um, you know, until then, it's important that we take care of it and strengthen it and, and treat it as something that is real and uh, meaningful, uh, instead of being sucked increasingly into this world of unreality. Um, you know, online avatar, doctored photos, and wanting to upload our, our consciousness into data and getting rid of the physical body. And maybe even uh, to some extent, uh, a rejection to plastic surgery as well. It's like you know, we can infinitely change our body and make anything that, uh, that we want, or injecting it with certain things that are not good for us. Whatever people want to do, I, you know, I, I support people's uh, right to do anything to themselves. But uh, merely, merely, I would encourage people to develop themselves first and see how that feels. Um, you know, I, I, I was a very artistic, uh, sensitive young man, and still artistic, sensitive in some respects. But um, you know, which is a more sort of feminine and sort of feeling and 
parents and uh, as opposed to uh, many young men at that time who were probably sort of stupid and um, would show off for no reason and were shallow and hollow and um, you know so I, I don't you know I don't criticize people for wanting to be different to the way they are at all but but I, but I would advise you know I see many young men who seem incredibly feminine and, and I would say to them, you, first of all, you want to strengthen the body and see how that feels before you do anything radical and permanent changes. Because that in itself is going to change your brain chemicals. Yes. Change the chemicals in your body. And, um, you know, unfortunately, this, this sort of thing is not encouraged. And um, that's really the foundation. Uh, you know, you mentioned Freemasonry, of course. And in Freemasonry, there's the symbol of the, the rough block of stone or the rough ashlar and perfect block of stone, which has been carved into a building block or perfect ashlar. And, uh, you know, we have to have to do this with our body as well. We might not reach perfection, but we still have to cultivate it just as we cultivate the mind, uh, just as we cultivate the spirit as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And, and, I, I, I don't know if you, how, how much you're, um, active on Twitter or if you've heard of, uh, this guy's anonymous account, um, raw, the raw egg nationalist. (laughs) It's, it's really worth checking out. And if you, if you, um, if you type that in on YouTube, there's some interesting interviews with him and he has a cookbook called raw egg nationalism, but he makes some really interesting points about, sovereignty and the body and how strengthening particularly in our time and and like you're saying particularly and I'm saying too particularly with men strengthening the body is a a real act of rebellion right now yes. and yes um there it's amazing to me the number of articles I'm starting to see where um kind of the the corporate press is trying to link physical development to far right ideology. Um, I even saw a study, which which is interesting if it's true in the implications that the more a man strengthens his body, the more to the right, his political opinions uh, tend to lean based on, on surveys, which, you know, in a certain sense could make sense to me, the more someone starts to empower themselves and feel empowered as an individual, yeah. the less there would be this desire for a dependence on, um, you know, the state or in, in authority yeah. figures, basically. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, mean, I mean, certainly as someone who was, you know, very uh, naturally very thin, I mean, I could eat an absolute ton of food when I was younger and I wouldn't put on an ounce. And, um, you know, definitely when I was, you know, not, working out or anything like that and I, I felt weak you know, and I definitely would have been much more in favor of being uh, you know maybe more police or something like that but once yeah. you start working out you feel like no, actually they're probably not going to be my friend if they're right on every street corner right <laughs> so, right and, and I can look after myself and maybe that's how I should be it's not that I wouldn't want police but I wouldn't, you know I don't I don't have a desire for them on every street corner um, yeah 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 and I, I think too, a lot of the situation that we're finding ourselves in right now with the virus, um, it, it would be, it would be, I mean, if you look at, it's been fascinating to look at the continent of Africa um, yeah. and how they have, you know, 
compared to places like the United States or Great Britain, have been virtually untouched. And and they don't have, I mean, a very simple indicator with all of this is obesity. And America is such an obese country. And we've, you know, we've even come to the point that you can't talk about that. You doctors are encouraged not to talk about it. But if people took some control of their own physical health, um, you know, if we weren't sick, a sick, fat country, um, these things wouldn't affect us like they're affecting us. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's certainly uh, the unspoken elephant in the room, right? That people are getting sick and dying. And of course, there will always be anomalies where somebody could be healthy, thin, or right. slim, muscular, and still die from COVID or whatever. That is obviously the case. But but certainly having a nation that, it, that feeds itself really mostly with junk food. I mean, we look at 90, 95% of food in the supermarkets, it's basically junk. And even the healthy food, or food that is advertised as healthy, read the ingredients, has all kinds of things in it that is very unhealthy. But including, you know, for example, um, you know, a lot of uh, diet food, which, which has, you know, low fat uh, advertised on the, on the cover of these packages. You know, when you look at it, yeah, sure, it's low fat, but they have you know, maybe three or four different types of sugar in, in the ingredients, and that's yeah. even harder to burn off than fat. Uh, and you'd certainly be better off eating uh, you know, a certain amount of healthy fat like butter or olive oil than you would with these sort of uh, baked sugars. Uh, so, but, but, you know, if you eat that food thinking that they're eating something healthy, um, you know, so, you know, I wouldn't, I don't think we should blame necessarily people who are often unhealthy and they, but they think that they're doing the right thing. But, um, you know, yeah it's, yeah, it's the uh, so much of the health food is like you said, it's this non-fat stuff or it's full of soy, which is particularly you know dangerous and bad for men. Um, there's another great quote in here from Vivekananda uh, where he says, um, first of all, our young men must be strong. Religion will come afterwards. You will be nearer to heaven through football than through the study of the Gita. You will understand the Gita better with your biceps your muscles a little stronger. Um, yes. <laughs> and I, I tell yeah. people often that it, particularly for men, I think that any man who's interested in the spiritual path could do virtually nothing better than go sign up at a BJJ gym and get involved in jujitsu and get involved in physical struggle with other men. Um, learning to get beat, learning to lose, being forced to lose, yeah. learning to win, learning to be victorious, right. to feel your aggression and give it, yes. you know, give it expression and to, to war with each other. I think men need to yeah. war with each other in healthy ways or otherwise it's just going to come out in these um, very negative, yeah. destructive, sneaky, underhanded, yeah. cowardly Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, well, there's a lot to say there. One of the things I think that, you know, for people who don't do that, I would say particularly women, um, often feel that, oh, no, there's something, you know, very violent about this kind of activity. Of course, it's violent on one level. But as you will know, some, if you're sparring against your, you know, a friend of yours or a 
guy who's in the same class, you maybe don't know him that well, and he hurts you, or you hurt him, or both. Um, you don't feel bad about him after, right? Do you? You feel more, in a way, you feel more bonded to him. It's like, yeah, we've been doing this together, even though I'm hurt from it, or you're hurt yes. from it. And, you know, you feel good about that other person. Um, you know, uh, and I certainly suffered a couple of, uh, not, maybe not major injuries, but like a finger that was fractured in three places and the bone was pushed out of alignment and a nasty uh, kick to the side that made, that made walking very difficult for about a month. But uh, probably the worst injuries, which aren't terrible, though they're bad enough. But, you know, in, 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 you know, in neither case did I feel bad about the, individuals who inflicted that uh, uh, pain on me. Not, not at all. You know, in fact, one of them probably feel a little more bonded to after that. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, beyond the need to exercise aggression, and, you know, as you uh, allude to, and as I point out in the book, the problem with not exercising your aggression in healthy ways, such as martial arts, or at least physical training, but, um, you know, is that it comes out intellectually. So we have all these incredibly violent people online now who want to destroy people's lives and do their best to destroy people's lives. Yes. Because, um, you know, they have no healthy way of exercising this aggression and they fool themselves and, and say to themselves that they're good people, they're moral. And, you know, once you start thinking of yourself as moral, um, you know, the game is up because you, you then say, well, I can do it ultimately I'm doing this for a cause um, you know there is a I don't know you probably know uh, Slavoj Žižek who calls himself a communist and you know whether he's really a communist I think is up for debate but um, from what I've heard him say is that he calls himself a communist because he knows that um, it's it's dangerous and that it has led to an absolute disaster so it's a kind of reminder not not to think of himself as moral in a sense and not to go down that track where you feel uh, you can attack people with impunity because you are moral. It's sort of almost like a sort of political memento mori in a certain sense. Yeah, you really need that too. And he's he's an interesting uh, he's an interesting thinker and it's well worth people's time to listen to him whether you agree with him or not. Um, he's a very interesting thinker and I think you know, kind of represents a a form of the left that that really no longer exists, or is or is being trampled by um, a kind of uh, you know Maoist view of things, which is completely driven by this sense of morality and completely driven by you know this sense of justification and egalitarianism, and it's something that you know, I, I try to talk to people about all the time is that, you know, totality, I don't, I don't know of any totalitarian regime that came to power saying we are going to be wicked, evil people who are going to crush you all under our heels. It's always about a moral struggle and doing yes. what is right and protecting the herd and all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and you know, I think we should acknowledge that 40 years ago or less than 40 years ago, it was the side that thought of itself as moral was the was the right or the conservatives. Mm-hmm. Whether they were really right or whether they were really conservatives in any sense um, is up for debate. But then, of course, it might be up for debate whether today's left is really left. But uh, you know, and and I, th- I think that you, you and I would both have opposed um, the right and the conservatives at that time who were, you know, 
doing all sorts of uh, uh, unethical things. Um, you know, I'm sure you you remember a Genesis PR agent you know, whose oh, house yeah. was raided for no good reason. Yes, uh, and there was a really infamous, um, uh, really infamous attack on hippies or travelers uh, called the Battle of the Beanfield, where uh, you know, and, you know uh, maybe we don't necessarily agree with the lifestyle, whatever it may be, but but you know, people are entitled to live how they want to live as long as they're not upsetting other people. And uh, you know, one day a, a convoy of young travelers were camped in a field and. Attacked them, smashed the windows of the buses, beat women, including uh, at least one pregnant woman with batons. They weren't even resisting arrest. Mm. Uh, it was a you know, it's a really horrific uh, behavior from the right because, of course, they thought that they were moral. And, right. Uh, one might one might say that perhaps that uh, was indicative of uh, that that worldview coming to an end. Uh, and perhaps it is also an indicative of another worldview coming to an end, uh, particularly if we do go into a more chaotic situation than we are in, which is quite possible. Yeah, I, I think we're probably close to the same age. I, I turned 49 recently and I grew up, you know, a punk rock kid right. here in the U.S. And I remember yeah. uh, when Al Gore's wife, Tipper Gore, led a a... I forget what they were called, like the Parents Music Research Council, I think is what it was called. And they were censoring records, you know, because they said that had violent lyrics or whatever it was. And, and they, you know, they were this, like you're saying, like the right was the, the censors and the speech police and the left was kind of about expression and freedom. And in a lot of ways, these, you know, kind of roles are flipping and maybe you're right. Maybe it's, it's the sign that, one is is coming uh, to another direction. I mean, I think there's yeah. definitely something I've been thinking about a lot lately and trying to write about and think about is that there's a, and I don't know what the right word for it even is, or if anybody even has the right word, there's, there's something on the right wing of politics, at least in the United States, that doesn't match what at least I traditionally think of as conservative and right wing, and that seems to be more rooted in something ancient and with this idea of, I mean, when I close my eyes and think about, I think of solar imagery, I think of, you know, the the strong, a strong man, community connections, ancestral connections, all of these kinds of things. And so I, I hope something new is going to be born. And in that, the thing that you write about, about the, the warriors coming in and then things eventually getting soft. Or if we think about yuga cycles from the new perspective, um, I think we're definitely going to come around to something yeah. there's a another part i want to mention in this uh necessary work before we talk about the friendship thing it, because i just thought this was so brilliant i had never thought about male bodies in in the way that you you talk about them here and i'm just going to read another excerpt from the book because you put it so well so i'm quoting you now you say a woman's body has shape and its shape, fluid, smooth, and curvaceous, emerges through natural processes as she reaches sexual maturity. She does not need to work to become a woman. She is at one with nature and with the women around her. The masculine body is a muscular body, and yet a muscular body does not appear through the process of maturation alone. 
It can emerge only with hard physical work, hunting with a spear, climbing, forging metal, or through physical training, but not through nature because of, or because a boy um, reaches puberty. And if the woman's cycle is aligned to that of the moon, the man is not literally aligned to its opposite, the sun. To declare himself aligned to it, he creates a world of solar symbolism. The ritual at night by the light of a flaming torch, the golden throne and crown of the king that reflects back the light of the hearth, and later the initiatic ritual in which the candidate enters in darkness, perhaps blindfolded, and then is exposed to light, symbolic of the light of God. And I thought this was, it was so, you know, like I, I've thought a lot about women being kind of naturally attuned to initiatic experiences. And, you know, I, we're both Freemasons. I don't know about your wife, but my wife has no desire to be a Freemason. Like she, you know, if there was a women's lodge in town, she would not be interested in it. She has her female friends who do spiritual things together, but they don't need special handshakes. They don't need, you know, all of the things that men seem to need. Um, and I, this thing about the body though, I had never thought about like the, the ideal masculine body is something that requires action and work and sacrifice and discipline. And you end it by saying the male is action and the female being. And I just thought that was just brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. And of course, you know, even if you look at, um, few tribes that exist in say Africa today, they have those uh, muscular bodies and they're, they're pretty slim but they're still muscular. And um, you know, we were talking about this earlier on, but in relation to um, uh, spirituality today, it's really important for men to get their bodies to some point, um, the, the beginning point where they have that kind of ancient body, the body that's relatively slim but muscular, uh, depending on the shape of the body, of course, but you, know, you need to work on it. And, um, you know, a lot of people ask me about inner alchemy, meditation, circulating of inner energy, and so on, and this kind of thing. A lot of men are really fascinated by this, you know, especially if it can be linked to sex, obviously. Right. But, um, but you, know, you, can't, you can't do this and have a weak, weak belly body because well, where are you getting this energy from? And I can tell you, as someone who's been doing this kind of meditation for four years, something like that now, uh, you know, when, I, when, I, when my body is strong, I can tell you the feeling this, sensing this inner energy is much easier. And when it is weak, it is much more difficult. Uh, so you have to get your body to a certain base level, which is not. Which you don't get in modern society, reading, junk food, and society. So you have to reach that base level before anything else. But then psychologically as well, of course. I mean, uh, you know, male initiations uh, sent men out into the wilderness to be sort of feral warriors and to survive in the unknown, to forge their bodies over a few years and come back accomplished and bright and fears and. And, um, you know, it's something in the psyche, something in the male psyche that really uh, needs this, even if it is uncomfortable. Maybe the male psyche needs discomfort. Um, but yeah, for sure. And, you know, and, you know, I can say personally as well, when it, 
thinking about my first girlfriend when I was 16, you know, um, you know, she definitely had a woman's body, but there was no way that I would look back and say that I had a man's body. Yeah, I mean, maybe, I didn't have a, maybe it wasn't a child's body, but it definitely wasn't a man's body. You know? it's, a, it's something you have to work on. And then everything else can come on top of that, but that's, that's the foundation you need. Yeah, I, I I I love that so much. Um, in the we're hitting up on an hour, so I'm not going to keep you too long. There's so much in this book, and I just I, I I cannot recommend it to people enough, particularly men, particularly men who are interested in developing sovereignty, a sense of self, and who are really interested in. And I'm not saying this as hyperbole. People who are interested in being. Um, warriors for for you know hopefully the survival of our culture um because we we definitely need it and in the chapter on noble friendship i think um you talk about something that um has been a real eye-opening experience for me since joining um the masonic fraternity uh and when I, when I approached the door of Freemasonry, my number one interest in becoming a Mason was esoteric. Um, I wanted to study the esoteric teachings. I was very inspired by Albert Pike. Um, I, I wanted to, you know, be involved in ritual and all of that stuff. And, and I, and I still love all of those things and, and Masonry is very rich and deep, but I did yeah. not go to Freemasonry to join a fraternity. And I'm, I'm kind of a loner type of person. I have a very public facing job. I'm around a lot of people every day and I typically don't like to be with people when I'm not at work. But, uh, one of the things that I found in Freemasonry was, a was a real brotherhood yeah. of people who I deeply enjoy spending time with. Um, and you know, not to give away secrets, um, one of the reasons I joined also was that my great grandfather and one of my grandfathers had been Freemasons, but my father's generation had kind of let it fall to the wayside. And I was looking for an ancestral connection to a spiritual tradition. And I knew yeah. I had, you know, in my immediate line of ancestors, men who had become Freemasons and I wanted to connect yeah. with that. And through some of the older men in the fraternity, I have, had this feeling of um, closeness with men of my father's generation and my grandfather's generation that I don't think there's anywhere else I would get in the world today. Um, That's right. And it has been extremely moving for me. And I mentioned, you know, that my wife has no interest in being a Freemason herself, but she is very supportive of my involvement in masonry right. because it makes me a better husband and it makes me yeah. you know, a better partner. And I feel like this, this chapter on noble, noble friendship, there's, you know, you can find this in a martial arts gym if you're at a good gym. Yeah. Um, but I found it through Freemasonry and this seems to be another aspect that men need that we yes. often don't have in the modern world, particularly men who, yeah. who, you know, like you said, are more on the artistic or spiritual side of things. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on noble friendship? 
Yeah, well, it's definitely essential for men to have some kind of brotherhood. And uh, as mentioned, surveys have shown that uh, people today have far fewer people that they can rely on. I think it's less than five. It might be about three people in, in a crisis. And of course, we don't want to just have a friendship or brotherhood uh, in case of a crisis. But um, that is a factor to think about. But um, the well, another reason why we really need uh, brotherhood is that if you think about uh, motherly love, fatherly love, and let's say brotherly love as well, uh, maybe people don't really understand the difference. Um, because you know, I think today a lot of people would say, well, you know, a, a father can be just like a mother, and vice versa. But mm-hmm. let's just think about them traditionally, what they mean. Uh, not least of all, because people don't live the way they don't live in accord with their ideas as well very often. But, you know, motherly love is about nurturing and protection. So even if you watch a documentary on a serial killer, almost inevitably there is a moment when they they show an interview with the mother and the mother will say, he's still my little boy. Right. I still love him. And, um, you know, that's motherly love, right? You never, never, ever hear the father saying, he's still my little boy. Right, and that's you know the mother wants to protect. He's still her little boy. She wants to protect him and nurture him and keep him safe. Whatever he does, that's her impulse. The father wants to. Uh, the, the father is about boundaries, right? So first of all, he wants to establish boundaries and then push the boy out of the boundaries. So maybe, um, so maybe the child is acting wild in some way. That, father says, no, you've gone beyond the boundaries, you have to behave, you have to be quiet, you have to be disciplined. Mm. Or maybe he's, you know, hitting on girls all the time and being sleaze and the father can say, don't behave like that. That's not the way to behave women, for example. Uh, But on the other side, he establishes boundaries, but on the other hand, he pushes the boundaries. So maybe the boy is sitting around doing nothing or the young man is doing nothing. And the father will say, you've got to get out of your comfort zone. You need to get a living. You need to experience things in life. You need to get out there. So the father is about uh, creating boundaries and pushing the boy beyond the boundaries. And brotherly love is sort of similar, but it's more about what we're going to do together. So we will establish this boundary ourselves. So you can be in this group if you adhere to these uh, rules or to this ethic and um, or have an interest in what we have an interest in. If you basically broadly share our worldview, if you're within that boundary, you can be a part of our group. And then we're going to push the boundaries together. So it's like fatherly love, but we're doing it together. So in, in Freemasonry, of course, you have to you know adhere to the Masonic worldview, you know, uh, brotherly love, belief in God, belief in something beyond death. Uh, try and refine yourself and improve yourself in some way, concern yourself with your own actions and not with those of other people. And um, and then maybe you'll push uh, the boundaries in some way. Maybe you want to improve your lodge experience in some way or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, or then maybe there's some project that you that you want to do together, whatever it may be. Um, so that is so that is brotherly love. You have a kind of establishment of a boundary that you can kind of move forward together uh, into the unknown and kind of push things a little bit further. And, and certainly that's very much a part of the male psyche. And I think it would be very helpful for a lot of men to experience something like that. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree. And I think, I think, you know, at least in my local experience of masonry and then of, of, you know, brothers that I know who are kind of spread out across the country, it seems that masonry is having a a little bit of a renaissance. I mean, at our lodge, we've gotten quite a few, you know, new petitions over the last year. Most of them have been on the younger end of, you know, what's typical for masonry today. Um, And I think a lot of that is people searching for this, this very thing, you know, um, this sense of community brotherhood. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, you know, not only community brotherhood, but also, you know, a lot of young men are interested in mythology, symbols, spirituality. But I think there's also a a recognition among uh, some younger men that, you know, they need some kind of initiation, some kind of initiation into manhood. And uh, really, where else can you find it in this day and age? And, you know, one of the peculiar things about Freemasonry is uh, the more you look at it, the more kind of archetypal and primordial it appears to be, and you find reflections of it in you know, all kinds of spiritual traditions and even in really archaic spiritual traditions that are pre-monotheistic as well, in a certain sense. Yeah. It's a very curious thing. Yeah, I, I, I can't think of the, unfortunately, I can't think of the man's name, but there's a an interesting two-part series on the Thoth Hermes podcast that's talking about, you know, this uh, brother is putting forward his um, thesis, basically, I suppose, that uh, that masonry is really rooted in a lot of the Norse traditions. Of yeah, the- well, that's definitely not true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, I, and I say that as someone who has, you know, great interest in, the Norse tradition, but that's precisely why I can say it's not true. Uh-huh. This is bad scholarship, to be quite honest with you. And uh, you know, maybe I will say that one of the first ever talk I gave on Freemasonry was looking at connections between Masons, Marks, and, and Runes uh, in, oh. in Anglo-Saxon England. But um, but no, uh, this is this is actually false. Uh, I, mean, I mean, you could you know you can make the the, the claims with, with, for example, the church that it incorporated a lot of pagan ideas. And in that sense, you could trace some kind of lineage back through the church to, um, to pagan ideas that would then, you know, reappear in Freemasonry. But, but no, the idea that you can trace a, uh, a line from uh, Freemasonry through stonemasonry to the ancient Norse is, uh, is false. And mm. it's just bad scholarship. It's, it's scholarship has been around for about, uh, 130, 40 years probably, but uh, it's basically oh, actually a lot more than that. But it's a bad scholarship. Interesting. I just recently came across it and don't know much about it, and had never heard yeah. that even put forward as a yeah. No, a it was idea. in the English speaking world. It was written by a guy called um, uh, George Ford, who was a, a Freemason from New Jersey, and uh, and. Uh, Guido von Bist in Germany made similar sort of claims as well. But, um, but you know, the, when you look at these uh, theories, not to go off the tangent, but um, uh, there are many, many, many theories about where Freemasonry came from, right? The ancient Egyptians were as Crucians, Royal Society, Jesus and his disciples. Right. Uh, the Druids, the Norse, as you just mentioned, probably the Aztecs, I would think. Uh, the Druze uh, from the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sufis. I mean, there's hundreds of theories, uh, and 
what, what do they all have in common? Well, they have two things. First of all, the, the creators of these theories uh, either are ignorant of the earliest uh, texts uh, and ritual fragments of Freemasonry, or, or misinterpret those that they are aware of. And the, the uh, theory is fundamentally based on the reinterpretation of symbols. Well, you can always reinterpret symbols, um, whatever context they're in, they have a different meaning. So that, that's the problem. Uh, they're, they're never based on uh, evidence and history and good scholarship. So. Hmm. That, I, I did not intend to go in this direction, but I'm going to ask you this question because sure. because sure. you are a, a scholar of, of masonry and the history of masonry. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about um, lately is, you know, part of the charge in the first degree of masonry is to be a quiet and peaceable citizen and to conform to the laws of your government and all of those kinds of things and living at a time when it seems that totalitarianism is rising. And then you wonder, well, what are my duties as a Mason in regards to this? And then, you know, the first thing I thought was like, well, were men taking this charge during the American Revolutionary War and then planning the overthrow of the colonial government in those same Masonic lodges? Um, Do you know if those were later additions to the um, ritual or how people would square that and how the yeah. American revolutionaries who were also Freemasons could square in their minds, their rebelliousness against the government with yeah. their Masonic obligations. Sure. Right. Well, so, so it appears in Anderson's constitutions of 1723, actually, and I think it's probably the first of the charges in fact. Um, so it's definitely long been around. Uh, with Freemasonry, but um, you know, they well, I mean, I don't know how people justify rebelling against their government if if that's the obligation that they're taking, right? not to rebel against the government. But I, I suppose that they would say that they were oppressed by the ruling powers, right, and therefore that the ruling powers were not really legitimate. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, I'm not, I'm not advocating insurrection for one second. But um, you know, obviously, there are, there are there might come a point, whether a hundred years or a thousand years from now. Let's just you know put it out there. But um, you know, of course, in some situations, you know, as peaceable as you want to be, you might have to rebel against your government. I mean, no one would have really wanted to live under a totalitarian regime where they're killing the innocent citizens. Exactly. I don't think you can go along with that in a good conscience. So you know, they will undoubtedly come times when uh, you have to say no to the government you know and i think everybody would agree if the government's murdering people on mass that would be one of those times right so you know there is a higher power than the government at the end of the day it's, uh, you know, as, as much as we should be you know um in adherence with uh rules that are normal decent of course yeah, and in my my understanding of it is, you know, so much in the teachings of Freemasonry is holding up the dignity and sovereignty of of the individual and the importance of uh, freedom within society and freedom of belief and freedom of worship and, right, and exactly. all of these kinds yeah. of things. And yeah. um, you know, I, I think Freemasonry, particularly like English Freemasonry, you know, has has attempted to influence the creation of governments that do uphold and respect those things. Um, and to the degree right. that that gets abandoned, um, 
you know, one of my thoughts is that that Freemasonry can hopefully be a place where that heritage of uh, the free individual could stay yeah. alive in right. in times of danger. Yeah, I mean, I think we are clearly a movement such as Freemasonry, where there's you know an emphasis on you know, brotherhood, um, but also on freedom of conscience. Spirituality of uh, improving oneself, of looking beyond this world and reflecting on one's own mortality, which is a very sobering thought, of course. Uh, you know, I think you know it's certainly true that that is more likely to um, uh, retain a lot of ideas that are healthy and necessary for societies to flourish than, than other institutions. I, I would say, for that, not least of all, for that reason. I would anticipate that it's going to become uh, increasingly taboo to be a member of it over the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, mm. Yeah. Uh, well, Angel, this has been a very interesting conversation. I could go on with you for another hour with thoughts and questions about masonry, but maybe we'll save that for another time. Um, I really appreciate you coming on and I like I said, I'll say it again, I cannot recommend enough that people buy this book, read this book. If you, I'd say particularly if you have any younger men in your life who are spiritually inclined, this would be a great book to give them for Christmas or New Year's. It is it is really, really good. And uh, where can people find out more information about you or get in touch? Do you have websites that you direct people towards? Sure. Well, the book is available on all the usual places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, places like that. But uh, people can contact me at my website, angelmillar.com, A-N-G-E-L-M-I-L-L-A-R.com. And uh, I do do some mentoring and also some hypnosis, uh, mostly with men, but not exclusively for uh, you know, helping people uh, get on track and head towards their goals and improve their lives in different ways. You know? check that out as well. I do sometimes publish articles on my website as well. Great. Well, thank you so much, brother, for coming on and thank you for writing this incredible book and um, I hope people purchase it, follow you, get in touch with you and that we really um, start to try to turn ourselves around and then, and then help strengthen and and heal our culture. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I would definitely say that no matter what the future holds, we really have to, still do our best to uh, improve ourselves and to move forward in life uh, and you know people have lived in dire circumstances in the past so we should not lose hope at all absolutely well i hope you have a, a merry christmas happy yule and a, a wonderful new year and i look forward to talking to you again soon likewise thank you very much all right good night Thanks for listening, friends. I know you enjoyed that interview. That was a great discussion. Um, As I said in the intro, as I said in the interview, I'll say it again right now. You need to get the book, The Path of the Warrior Mystic. It's a great Christmas present to give to yourself. It's a great Christmas present to give to uh, men that you have in your life. Um, Engage with this material. Find that aspect of the warrior and the mystic within you. It's what we need to right the ship. And the time 
is now. Um, as the founding fathers have had said, the hour is getting late for resistance to the tyranny that we see rising all around us. I really appreciate you listening to the show. Please like and subscribe wherever you're listening. Let your friends and family and community know about the show. Share it on social media. Get the word out. Uh, I really appreciate everybody listening. Feel free to reach out to me on social media in all the usual places. I love interacting with listeners. If you have thoughts, if you have feedback, if you have ideas for the show, I would love uh, to hear your feedback. And I really appreciate everybody listening. And lastly, while I do believe we are living in bleak and dangerous times and things are unraveling quickly, there is hope. And I think that's one of the most powerful messages about this time of the year when everything seems to be dying to becoming brittle and infertile. We maintain the hope for the rebirth of that solar energy, that savior power, uh, the return of spring. And in that same way, we need to fight with hope and love and faith, faith in that inner fire in our hearts. No matter how bleak, no matter how dark the winter seems to be, as long as we keep that fire kindled, as long as we keep that faith, the fire will return. And I am convinced, as all the great mythic cycles of the Indo-European people teach us, ultimately, good will conquer evil. And so take that to heart, friends. Do not let yourself get depressed. Do not let yourself get beaten down. This tyranny will fall and we will succeed. Thank you again for listening. I hope you and your family have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Yule. I hope you had a wonderful solstice and are really getting into the joy and hope and power of the season. And stay tuned to Inner Fire. We have a lot of interesting things coming up in the new year. I look forward to engaging in the battle with you. Until we speak next time, keep that fire burning.